Listeners, welcome to the show. I am Dan Clark, and today I'm flying solo for this intro. As I'm recording this, we're finding ourselves towards the end of March. My co-host, Mr. Sean Keating, is trying to wrap up his basketball season. Getting everybody on the same page to think about what they can work on for uh, the next season and the next time we're on here together, we'll probably be talking about some of those lessons that he learned this season during the pandemic. Bit of a different situation. Today on the show, we are going to explore an interview that me and Sean did a couple weeks ago with a podcaster, author, trauma coach, extraordinaire, Michael Anthony who wrote the book Think Unbroken, which chronicles his life's journey and all of the extreme struggles he faced throughout it. Uh, The guy is a trauma coach for a reason because he experienced a fair amount of it himself. And uh, on this this episode, he really dives into that and, and shares how some of those horrific moments uh did a lot of damage to him down the road and how it takes quite a bit of work to deal with that stuff and integrate it into your life in a successful way. So go ahead, uh, have a listen and uh, enjoy the show. If you'd like to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, you can do so on the Apple Podcasts app. We're everywhere that podcasts are available. If you want to check out our Instagram page, theeternalstudent.podcast on Instagram. And uh, I put together a website. Nothing too fancy, but uh, the link can be found there on that Instagram page. So without further ado, enjoy today's interview with trauma coach, think unbroken author, Michael Anthony. Welcome to the show. I know your story is a little bit as long, probably, because this, you've turned it into a book. It's been your kind of focal point or your basis for your podcast. But how, how did you how did you get to this point? I mean, obviously, that's a long journey. But what are some of the the high points or the low points or you know the those moments on that uh, path? You know, so I high level. I'll give you guys the elevator pitch, so we're not here all day, um, and we can dive into wherever you want to go. So I grew up in Indianapolis. Uh, my mother was a drug addict and alcoholic. When I was four years old, she actually cut off my right index finger. Um, that kind of lays down baseline, right, of trauma and chaos in my home. When I was six, she married my stepfather, super hyper abusive guy, like the dude you pray is never your stepfather. And this was all going on while growing up in the Mormon church. By the time that we were, I was 10, we were constantly homeless in poverty, living with strangers. I must have lived with 30 different families between 10 and 12. And when I was 12 years old, my grandmother, she adopted me um, because I'd been living by myself in a house with no running water or electricity for like three months before the the start of my, my freshman year of high school. And you would think that'd be a godsend, except one huge problem. I'm biracial, black and white. My grandmother, some super racist old white lady from a town in Tennessee you've never heard of. I mean, we even had a copy of Mein Kampf on our kitchen table. Like if if that kind of gives you baseline, right? So imagine this. By the time I'm I'm 12, 13, living with her, I start getting high every day, smoking weed, popping, you know, little prescription pills here and there. That turns into breaking in the houses, stealing cars, running with guns, hurting people, using drugs every day, selling drugs. Um, I get expelled from high school my sophomore year, but get put into a last chance program because like realistically, the last thing on my mind, the last thing I cared about was school. I got real problems going on out here. Um, And so I go, I do that program. Eventually I graduate, not on time. 
Um, my high school was listed as a dropout factory. If you go and look at the Harris polls results of that time. And I was one of the number 10 worst high schools in America when I graduated, like our, our completion rate was less than 33%. So that kind of gives you the baseline of understanding where, where education is there. And, you know, I find myself in this really interesting conflict because on one hand, I'm like, all right, I'm going to join the military because that's what poor kids from the hood do when they want to make it out. And then I can't pass MEPS because of a knee injury that I suffered. And then on the other side of it, I was like, all right, if I keep selling drugs and I keep seeing my friends go to prison, my three childhood best friends were murdered and my family's in prison, some for life. I'm like, okay, then how do you really navigate poverty? And my thought was money. And so I made a declaration that by the time I was 21, I was going to make six figures legally, right? That was the only thing I cared about. And so by the time that I was 21, I landed a job with a Fortune 50 company making six figures. I did exactly what I said I was going to do. This is crazy for a poor kid from the hood who barely graduated high school. And that only actually exacerbated problems in my life because here's the the truth about money is it's going to make your life worse until you understand how to fix your life, right? And, and what happened is I found myself constantly in the throw of excess, more cars, more clothes, more girls, more food, more alcohol, more drugs, more late nights, more, 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 just the worst things you could imagine. And at 25, I found myself at 350 pounds, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, drinking myself to sleep, cheating on my girlfriend and, and making a ton of money. Like everything was a disaster. And one morning I'm laying in bed, I'm like edging into 26 at this point, I'm weighing 350 pounds, eating chocolate cake, smoking a joint. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm watching the CrossFit games and I'm like, what is going on here? And, and the next day I wake up, I'm getting ready to go do this conference. I'm looking in the mirror, buttoning up a size 4XL shirt, size 47 pants. And I was like, you got to do something about this. Like I was at this threshold where after another failed suicide attempt just prior to that, like I knew I was going to die within the next couple of years if I didn't change something. And, and that started this personal growth journey because here's the thing I didn't understand. The impact of all of the trauma that I experienced in my life was dictating who I was, right? And, and I say this all the time, you can either be the hero of your story or it can control you. And I was living life in accordance with what everyone said I was gonna be. Not good enough, not strong enough, not smart enough, not capable enough, not handsome enough, not whatever enough. And because we are the stories we tell ourselves, I was telling myself that narrative and that came to pass. And in that moment of looking in the mirror and recognizing what had happened is I broke a promise to myself. When I was nine years old, we were so poor that our water got cut off, right? Imagine living in America in a major city and your water gets cut off because you are that impoverished. And I was literally going across the street with this little blue bucket and stealing water from the spigot of our neighbor's house so that we would have water. That's how poor we were. And in that moment, I remember making this declaration myself. I said, when I wait, when I'm a grown up, because the only thing I ever wanted to do as a kid was be an adult. I said, when I'm a grown up, my life isn't going to be like this. And it was true. I had enough money. I burned through so much of it, but everything else was a disaster. And what that promise really meant was that I'm going to live the life that I want to live. And so I stepped into it. And almost 10 years later, here I am talking to you guys. Wow. That's, that, I mean, that's quite the story. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. You know, I guess one thing that I'm curious about is just how, how many times it takes to have kind of aha moments before you have the one that sticks. Like throughout this, you know, you say you, you, you wake up after those CrossFit games and you have that realization. I mean, there must have been times before that where you maybe glanced at yourself or, you know, had a reflective moment, but brushed it aside. Um, and what I, I really wonder what it is sometimes about the one that sticks. So like, why, why do you think that was the moment 
that well it and, didn't and I mean work. you're absolutely right. You know, and, and and in my own podcast, I have doctors, I have scholars, I have PhDs on, and and the question always comes is how do you mitigate the risk of rock bottom, right? Because ultimately that seems to be the moment in which change occurs. I don't have an answer for that. And so far, no one else does. I think as human beings, we innately like this thing of like suffering and like burning ourselves at the stake until we can't take it anymore. And I had this look, man, like realistically, my routine was I would go to work, go to the gym. There was a McDonald's in the parking lot of the gym, of course. And so then I would go to the gym, get on the treadmill for five minutes, be like, I worked out really hard, go smoke a cigarette, go to McDonald's, go home and drink, right? That was the routine. And it was like, I knew I was poisoning myself. I knew I was damaging myself. I knew I was killing myself. Innately, we know these things, like we know it, but the difference between knowing and acceptance is decision. And in that moment, the reason why that final, that final straw, if you will, came to pass is because I looked myself in the eyes in the mirror for the first time. And I really made the, I was like, get your shit together, do it. Stop making excuses. You can't keep sitting here and blaming the damn world for your problems. It's not anyone else's fault that you're in this situation, but you, you want a life, go do something about it. You spent all this time chasing these dreams of money and cars and girls and clothes and your life is a disaster. Your friends hate you. Your family won't talk to you. You can barely stand the side of yourself in the mirror. What the fuck are you going to do about it? And like, really, I think that there is a moment where you have to just kick yourself in the ass and say, show up. Because I like, I mean, realistically, I'd been going to therapy. I'd been reading the self-help books. I'd been doing some of the stuff, but I hadn't yet put myself in this position of making the declaration of change, right? You can sit in here and like pre-contemplate and contemplate life all day long. And you can have these moments of I'm going to be better, but it doesn't matter if you don't hold yourself accountable. And see, the biggest thing that I understood growing up was never step into your power because every time time that you have an opinion, a thought, you want to have some sort of self-actualization, there's a ramification on the backside. That's the experience for so many people, especially children who come from traumatic backgrounds, because the moment you try to step into being the person that you believe you're capable of being, someone slams your face into a wall. And so to reframe that takes a lot. And I think the unfortunate part about that reframing process is it's just this cycle, right? It's this continuation of this loop where you have to go back through it again and again and again until it sticks. And then when it sticks, then you're just kind of on the path and you create these new plateaus where as you're on it, you have the momentum forward knowing like, hey, man, I'm still going to fall back. I still have these moments and these experiences, even after that declaration of, okay, I screwed up. I made this mistake. But, you know, the thing is, what outweighs those mistakes is a leveraging those as points of data because you look at it and go okay now i know not what to do right and the other side of it is you just have to keep going forward no matter what because if you're going to make a promise to yourself the only person that it matters that that promise is held to is you and so you're faced with the ultimate quarry or excuse me dilemma it's just like in literature it's you versus you what are you going to do about it? And, and like that moment of like having that mirror and looking and, and having all of these experiences that ultimately led up to that moment, I think that it had just become enough fuel for the fire in which I was like, all right, fuck this. So <laughs> trauma, we, we've, I remember two years ago, we had a presenter come in and talk about, you know, what trauma is. And there were some rankings and we looked at kids and we talked about like, you know, different things. So I think a baseline there to hear from you is kind of like an explanation of, of how you would describe trauma for our audience. And then the second part would just be, um, we did an episode a couple weeks ago about, you know, Brene Brown's vulnerability and some of that, that talking points and just about, you know, kids, especially our students letting themselves be seen. And a lot of kids don't want to let themselves be seen um, because of the trauma and because of the story that they don't want people to know. It's not like as you were going through, I'm sure you didn't want to broadcast to people, hey, I've been in this many homes and I've done all this and here's what I'm doing, right? I'm sure it was trying to like not let people know everything about you and not let people in. And so 
if you could just talk about what trauma is and then you know if you think about these kids especially teenagers and when they have these stories of that are going on in their lives um how important it is to finally did you have somebody that you could open up to did you get to that point where like there was somebody that you could kind of trust and how important that might be in the process yeah those are amazing questions and i'm really glad that you asked that first trauma is the ramification of the adverse experience that you had right so it's not necessarily the experience though it, that obviously plays a role but it's the impact on the backside of it right you know you think about it you what happens is you get into these experiences where something really terrible happens to you, you disassociate, and then it starts to disassociate basically means you're not present within your brain or your body after the fact. And then that experience is a fragmented memory where just suddenly it continues to flash up, right? Flashbacks, triggers, things of that nature. And then you find yourself, whether it's, you know, self-harming, self-abuse, drinking yourself to sleep at night, eating yourself to sleep, whatever that thing might be, is because of the unresolved issue that you experience. Because ultimately the way that I look at it, those experiences lead to these places where innately because it is our number one job as a human being to survive we build out survival mechanisms right and so every single time we're faced with a negative or adverse experience we go no 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 survival mechanism the hard part about that is they are often more detrimental than the experience that we actually had right and i, I go and i look at a lot of people who you know self-sabotage or have an eating disorder or like our bodybuilders right you can go and look at the correlation between an adverse experience and then that ramification as an adult you know if, if you're i won't go too deep because i could literally talk about this for hours but if you go look at the adverse childhood experiences survey that was done in the mid 90s with dr filetti and the Kaiser um, Kaiser Permanente Hospital in California Disease for Center for Disease Control, they found this distinct correlation between childhood sexual abuse and adulthood obesity. And then it turned into understanding, wow, maybe if your parents were divorced or you were beaten or you were starved or all of these other things, chances are as an adult, you may have disassociative disorder. You may be bipolar. You may be overweight. If you had a certain number of these adverse experiences, you could be up to 5,200% more likely to commit suicide. I put a gun in my mouth at 25 years old. Like there is a cause and result of all of these things that happen to us. And like working through and navigating those traumatic experiences, like that's the hardest part about stepping into what's next. And so I hope that was a fair explanation. I can go a lot deeper if that doesn't make sense, but for to answer the other side of the question, vulnerability is difficult, right? And it's especially difficult for children and especially teenagers because you were in this growth phase. You have no idea which way is up. Your hormones are raging. Either you're horny or you're angry. Life is insane, right? And, and in those moments of vulnerability and especially depending on what kind of environment you are in, a lot of children experience trauma in school being hurt or beat up by peers or, you know, whatever the things that come, you know, and, and I don't know anyone who has not been bullied in school. That's a part of the process, right? And so you think about all of these negative things that reinforce the hypothesis of if I show up, then on the backside, there's a ramification. How in the world does a child step into vulnerability without being persecuted through themselves with shame and guilt. And I don't know that you can or have the ability to in unsupportive environments, right? And for me, looking at my environment, especially in school, I, I never told anyone my story. You, there's no way you couldn't look at me and know something was wrong. I mean, in elementary school, I was the kid who smelled like piss and wore dirty clothes. In middle school, I was the malnourished kid. In high school, I was the kid who was always in fights, getting suspended, had straight Fs. I graduated high school with a 1.6 GPA, right? I mean, and and here's the fascinating part of it. On the, on the, you know, the, it's called the I-STEP, the equivalency exam for graduation. I had almost a perfect score on that, right? And you go and look at these moments and experiences, 
in the nine minutes we have been talking, you guys know more about me than people for the first 28 years of my life, right? How do you step through and navigate shame and guilt when the only experience that you've ever had has been told, don't, you know, stop crying or I'll hit you harder. Don't you dare show up in this moment as yourself because I'll throw you through a wall. You know, your emotions, your feelings are not valid. I, you know, and then you hear the, the, the narcissistic parents go, I bend over backwards for you. Look at what I do for you. I brought you into this world. I'll take you out. So on and so forth. You have all of these compounding factors that lead to ultimately an emotional shutdown. The one thing about being a human being that separates us from other species is our ability to be an emotional being. And so you not only necessarily remove that, but you strip it away from people. You negate their experiences of being a human human being. And thus you interject that with these other formations of ideas and concepts of validity being more girls, more clothes, more cars, more, 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 right? And now you have this stripped down human being who's robotic. The hard part about stepping in through the path, and, and look, I love Brene Brown's work. I think that she's a very poignant and an amazing researcher. And she makes a lot of very valid points. I love everything she does. And I will reinforce it with this. The only way that you move through shame and guilt is moving through shame and guilt. And the hard part about that is taking that first step. And that's often the most terrifying experience that you have because you have to get to this place where you're willing to be vulnerable with yourself first. And the absolute hardest thing that we'll ever do is look in the mirror and be okay with the other side on that reflection. Yeah, uh, I can even notice this in you know, my, four, my five-year-old son. You know, he hasn't had, you know, I wouldn't say very traumatic experiences, but even when, you know, I ask him, you know, about one piece of his day where, you know, maybe some bullying happened or some kid was mean to him, he won't, he, he guards it. You know, he, he almost inherently won't be vulnerable. And he, I mean, I show nothing but love to him and say like, I'm not, nothing's going to happen if you, if you say this thing, but even yet, you know, it's, 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 it's a process that I feel like, you know, it's not something that, uh, you know, we are maybe born or raised up with the ability to do, because like you just said, the only way to go through that is to go through that. You know, he has to have experiences where he does share those moments and, you know, he survives, you know, like it's nothing, nothing bad happens because he shared that moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think it's, you know, when you're talking about this, it really makes me think about like, even the the kid with the most that's been given to them, right? Just that they, they've grown up in a home that they've been loved, they've been cared for, and they're coming from a great family and great. And, and I coach players and teach students. And the biggest thing that I say that I tell them I want for themselves is I want you to like know who you are and believe like in yourself. And even for the kid that has had every reason to do that, it's still an immense struggle. And so if I talk to you about, you getting to that point where you kind of had the idea of what you wanted was what you saw in society or whatever of money and girls and cars and the material things. So if I go to the next step, then what did you find that you needed to fill your tank the right way? Like, how did that process go? Because you didn't really have those influences to tell you, here's what you need to feel love and valued. Yeah, it's, it's easy. It's self, well, it's easy and very, very difficult. Self-love, <laughs> right? And, and defining what that narrative means and then moving towards this place of, look, here's the reality. At 27 years old, almost a decade ago, I looked at my life and I said, I have no self-esteem. And then I sat within that and I said, I've never had self-esteem. I've never once been in this position in my life where I felt good about who I was. That's the hardest thing. Like, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Tom Bilyeu. He's one of my favorite human mm -hmm. beings and my mentor. And one of the things that he always says is the most important thing in life is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. And in these moments of my excess, whether it's be at the club or surrounded by all these people or whatever it was, I felt amazing, Right by myself, I hated myself because that's what I was taught. I was taught to hate me. I was not good enough. How dare you? No wonder your father left you. No wonder this happened, right? You're not good enough to exist within the plane of humanity. And so 
the first thing that I had to do, and I, I wasn't rational of it at the time. Like I did not have the words for this at 24, 25, 26, when I started getting serious about healing. The only thing that I knew was if I didn't do something, I was going to die. Right. And so what I decided to do was take that understanding and then leverage that until the point that I started to make these discoveries. Right. And so it started with therapy and group therapy and men's group therapy and EMDR and CBT and all the acronyms on the world and journaling and, you know, getting into shape and quitting smoking and not drinking all the time and being single for a very long time and, you know, things of that nature. And then what I discovered, and it just kind of hit me one day, I was like, oh, wait, taking care of yourself is self-love. And the way that you establish self-love is by doing the things that you say you're going to do. Oh, okay. When I do the things that I say I'm going to do, then I feel better about myself. Oh, oh, maybe that's self-esteem. Oh, okay, cool. When I do the things I say I'm going to do and feel better about myself, that's self-esteem. That means, okay, maybe it means that I can love myself. And then you have this cycle, right? And so much of it is making a declaration and writing down goals and putting things on paper and looking at them every day. And then there's the mindset factor in this whole thing where you have to change the narrative. You effectively have to reframe everything that you understand about yourself. Because if everything you've ever understood is I'm not good enough, then if that's the narrative you're spinning in your head, that's going to continue to hold true. And in the understanding that I have of this shift of reframing, I just started talking to myself differently. And it took a long time because the only things, I mean, think about it. The worst things you've ever heard in your whole life come from yourself. And, and that works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, that's when you're at your rock bottom and you're like, okay, maybe I should be nice to myself. And that's a really difficult thing to do. You want to build up to be the person that you're capable of being. I think it's twofold, right? You have to establish what that human being is. And so I literally wrote out and frameworked every aspect of my life, top to bottom, everything, all of it, just weeks and days and months of just writing, writing, writing. And then on the backside of it is that I just started changing the way that I talked about myself to myself, because how can you be great if the only thing you ever hear from your own mind is you're not enough? Right. And it's not like that other voice. We've talked about this before, but the other voice doesn't necessarily go away, but it's, you know, the positive self-talk just has to be you know, consistent and maybe louder or, uh, you know, take place more often than those other kind of unconscious thoughts that pop into your mind. I mean, do you, could you, would you say that's true that there is still a part of you that will, you know, put yourself down and you'll have to compete with that voice? hundred percent. Look, here's what I think about this. Again, coming back to what I said, if we are the sum total of all of our experiences until this moment, then that means all those experiences inform who we are. And that means that that little voice, it's going to be there, right? There's always going to be a little voice here that says, Michael, you know, you're not good enough. You dare try this. Who do you think you are? Oh, you, you think that you're somehow going to change the world, blah, 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 right? The list goes on and on and on. The reality is that you in those moments, and, and I'll just speak for myself. Let me put it this way. In those moments, when those voices come up, I shut them down. They don't get a fucking say in my life because they had done everything possible to sabotage me. That didn't work, right? That did not help make my life better. And so when those moments arise, which assuredly they do, as much as I know the sun will come up tomorrow, I know that that will be a struggle I have to face today. And the way that you move through that is you just do the opposite of what the voice is telling you. And I think about it like this, you know, in the beginning, that takes up 100% of your capacity. And then every single day you work through it and it takes up less. And eventually in time, on a long enough timeline, you get to this place where it's 1% of the thoughts that you ever have. And in that moment of those 1% of thoughts or 70% or whatever it is, you reinforce the opposite of what it's telling you. And that's a, that's a thing that you have to do for yourself. And for me, it was in those moments of you're not capable, everyone's going to judge you. In part, it was, I don't care if people judge me. I've already been poor. I've been homeless. I've been everything. How, how worse can it get, right? And then the other thing is like, let them judge 
and see what I can do. And the truth is like, I do have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about this because not only do I want to prove everyone wrong who told me I was never going to be shit, but I want to prove myself right. You are capable of doing these things, but the only way anyone is ever going to do anything great is by doing great things. And you just have to define what that is and fight through those voices because both of you know this. You've never done anything that was worth doing without a struggle. So what's your kind of, you think about the work that you do and like, if you can give back to, you know, teenagers and, and, and people that are going through homelessness and going through the things that you've struggled with, like what, what's your kind of purpose and, and vision to give back to the world in that regard? You you talked about at the beginning, like I want to uncover things um, for people and maybe just to help us as educators, like what, what can we do? Cause these kids, like we, they don't want a lot of times, like I said, they don't even let you see them and you kind of might know a little bit about them, but like, what, what do we just need to do as, and maybe what you're trying to do specifically and, and just as a world to help, um, people that have gone through so much trauma. Yeah. That, I love that question. I, I think, let, let me address it two ways. One to answer your first question first, Ultimately, my goal, the number one thing that I want to do in life is to end generational trauma. Now, on a long enough timeline, I know that that's possible. Realistically, I'm going to be dead before that happens. However, because that is my goal, I move towards it every single day. And that means taking actions in line with my values that are not illegal, because that's very, very important to me, (laughs) to move towards that goal by any means necessary, right? So ultimately, that's why I do this. Because if I can make my job obsolete, meaning that we've done enough work in the world where somebody is not hurting their child to the point that as an adult, they have to have this conversation with me, then that means we win, right? Now, how do you impact it at a level in which you guys exist? I don't know. Here's what I do know. When I was a kid, the only thing that I ever wanted a teacher to do for me was just say, I see you. I understand this is happening. If you ever need me, I'm here. That's it. I'm not asking you for help. We come from a place where asking for help is weak, especially as men and men of color. If you have any of of students of color, what we come from is an environment that says, figure it out, man up, don't cry. Right. But on the other side of it as well as, you know, I think when I was a child, especially a teenager, I didn't understand anything other than survival. We are constantly in this survival mechanism. Our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system is all over the place. Again, we don't know up from down, plus our hormones are all over the place. And the only thing that I ever wanted from a teacher was acknowledgement of my existence. Hey, I see you. I'm not going to ask you what's going on. I'm not going to dive deep into your life. Just know that if you ever need anything, I'm here for you. And there was one, te- let, me, let me say this, because I think this is really, really important. I had two teachers in my life who I, I thanked in my book, who are probably the reason that I'm here today. One was Mr. Hollingsworth, who was my English teacher and wrestling coach. And one day when I was in this last chance program, he came up to me and he said, you're not supposed to be here, do better, right? I needed that challenge because I never had, as a kid with no male role model, I needed that right? And then the other side was Mr. Brown, who was the basketball coach. I wrestled, I didn't play basketball. And, and he was my business teacher. And he is the person that ultimately made me have to make a decision about life. Because my senior year, they posted the graduation list, my name wasn't on it. And I knew immediately why. And I went up to his classroom and this is funny. My girlfriend called me. I was at home playing video games stoned. And she was like, you're not graduating. I was like, what are you talking about? Of course I am. How do you not graduate the school where everyone graduates? And so, (laughs) and so I go to school. I, I see he gave me an F. I go up to his room. I'm pissed. Like I'm 18. I'm a monster. I'm like hitting the locker. I'm like, how dare you? This is your fault. Right. Not recognizing or understanding the reality of the situation. And he says something really, really important to me. And it changed, it literally changed my life forever at that moment. And, and he goes, I only asked you to check in with me and do homework 
look, this is a teacher who'd seen everything. He'd been teaching in public schools for 20 something years. And there's nothing you were ever going to tell this dude that he had not experienced, right? He knew that I was impoverished. He knew I was homeless. He knew I was selling drugs. He knew I was living with a grandmother who was dying. He knew all of these things, right? And, and he goes, I asked you to check in with me and do homework. And you didn't do that one time. And you need to understand something about life. You're not going to get by on your charms and your good looks. And he gave me an F and I had to go to summer school. And it was the most important thing that anything that had ever happened because a teacher stood up for me. Consequences. Yeah. What you, what I don't even think about it as consequences. I think about it as reality. Right? And they're holding you accountable, he, he, right? He gave me the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I expected him to, I guess I expected him to give you like this golden nugget besides like, yeah, you're failing and you're going to summer school because you did nothing. And that was the moment. That's all, that's all it took. That is the goal. Yeah. Look, man, that is the golden yeah. nugget because until that point I had like kind of skated by, right? Because I was an athlete. I, you know, I was a letterman, you know, I was super popular, even though I was, look, my senior year of high school, I missed 90 days. Right. That's a few more than days. Ferris Bueller, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely more than Ferris. And and he was the only teacher that stood up for me, not against me, but for me, because he said, I see your potential. You made a promise. You didn't follow through. What are you gonna do about it? And then I had the embarrassment of being the the dumbest kid in one of the no offense to all the kids I graduated with, but in a school <laughs> where it's impossible to graduate from. <laughs> It's impossible not to graduate, right? And and I made a decision and he made me understand that choices have ramifications in the real world. Because look, I was about to be another person in my family who didn't graduate high school. I don't even know how I want to ask this, but going, going to a school <laughs> that is, you know, so, you know, known as being this kind of joke and, 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 you know, people have such low graduation rates and everything. And um, I just think about public education in general and just how it, you know, can a lot oftentimes be the haves and the have nots. Um, just kind of any thoughts about just like kids that are growing up in that environment and like how, I know it's a big philosophical question, but like, how do we make it better? Like how, how do we make education in those environments and those communities? Um, what, What's anything that you have just from going through that experience? I think you have to stop lying to kids. Like seriously. And, and what I mean by that is we paint this picture, go to college. Dude, the only thing I was trying to do was not get murdered or go to prison. You think I care about college? Are you out of your mind right now? College? Like stop lying to me. Look at my life and go, oh shit. I think that this kid might probably get murdered because his friends just did. Maybe college isn't that important. Maybe we need to set him up for success of just making it into the next step, right? And, and that's the weird reality of the, this educational society that we live in. It's like graduate, go to college, get a good job. Show me that in my neighborhood. Yeah, and right? it's, you know what's crazy is like that, that idea of not lying to kids it applies across the spectrum of those that, you know, the, the level, like the, of the students that have different levels of interest in school, like that same lesson can be told to the students that think that in, if I don't get an A, you know, life as I know it is over. And, 100%. you know, it's, it's the educational yeah. system's a joke, man, because we're, we're portrayed this idea, this idea is portrayed to us that the only way we're going to be successful in life is this. And let me tell you this, I run on the other side of my business, not this one, a multi-million dollar business. I'm the vice president and a board director. I have another business and another one, another one, another one, right? I, I failed my high school business class, right? <laughs> like, like that is what's so interesting about this. The real world doesn't care about your grades. It's, so yes, just yesterday I had this conversation <laughs> with my mock trial students who were, you know, they were stressing out about an assignment that, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get it done and I might not get an A. And I just said, who, nobody cares that, about your high school GPA. <laughs> No one's going to care. And, you know, it was a it was a battle that lasted 
a half an hour and I did not change their mind after. Um, so it's, a, it's an, it's an idea that's really, it's been conditioned into them. And it, I'm glad yes. that, you know, we have somebody on here that can speak to that. You know, I mean, I try to give them my example, but that doesn't always, you know, pique their attention, I guess, but it's, it's something yeah, that I think, close. yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think the hard, the hard part about that reality is you're like, it's the lead the horse to water analogy, you know, and until the kids are out there and for me too, until you're out in the real world, you don't understand what actually does and does not matter. And, you know, the thing with grades, the, the, the juxtaposition of this is like, I knew I didn't want to be the kid to not graduate high school in my family. I didn't want to be the next one, but I also knew like, it didn't matter because like, if I didn't go and sell drugs at night, I wasn't going to eat. Right. Or worse, our electricity might get turned off or water or whatever. And then, you know, it turned into me like having real jobs and doing real things and trying to not get in trouble because I saw the real world. And I, I think that, you know, everything points to the idea of like, in order to be successful in life, you must navigate this educational system effectively. When in reality, in order to be successful in life, the one thing you must navigate is life. And this is such a small portion. Look, the other day I was sitting thinking, oh my God, my 20 year reunion is around the corner. <laughs> I'm definitely not going like for sure. Cause I don't care. Um, also because my high school got shut down, but, <laughs> but all, but the other side of it is like, everything that I know about life came ex experientially, right? You want to get to this place in life in, in which you find success. A, let's define what that means. Why don't we give children a roadmap that says, build your life? What are your goals? What do you want your relationship to look like? What do you want your health to look like? What do you want, you know, your hobbies to look like and your adventure to look like? I mean, growing up, no one in my life ever had a passport. I didn't know anyone who ever left Indiana. <laughs> and at 18 years old, I moved to New York City because I was like, fuck this. I'm going to figure it out. And then obviously that didn't work out because you can't move to New York City with five hundred dollars. And then <laughs> and then and now I've I've traveled the world. I've lived in 12 different countries. Right. I've experienced because I took a piece of paper and I wrote it down. And I said, this is what I want my life to look like. And I think if we taught children mindset in school to come back to answer your question, I think in a more fair way, if we taught children mindset in school and the possibility that on the backside of fear, they could actually have the thing that they want to have, the world would be a much different place. Yeah, well, think, yeah. good, good to report that, uh, Last spring, I was sitting in a department meeting, and uh, they're asking for new classes for um, following school year. And I just said, you know what? I'm just kind of sick of some of the stuff that's been going on. So I just made a course called The Science of Mindset and Nutrition. And I wrote a description. And my background is I was a research um, scientist for a few years and then got into teaching. And so, um, and I coach and I just have always been a big proponent for mental health and mindset and mental toughness. And for whatever reason, when I was in high school, I came up with a name, you know, Kobe had Mamba mentality. Well, Sean Keating had mental warrior. And so I'd write MW on my shoes and I just made this kind of whatever little alter ego. And, uh, I've been teaching that class this year and it's been, it's been pretty life-changing, um, doing a lot of journaling, a lot of deep reflection, a lot of asking kids about who they really are and self-identity. And, it, and it's really been the stuff that I do on the side with my students from time to time, and they really enjoy. And now we're just diving into it. And um, it, it's, it's been a blast. And so I think one question that came up when I think about this, you must obviously hire people with all your businesses. And if you think about the type of people and what you're looking for, it's probably not grades. What are you looking for to give some advice to our audience? of like the skills and the qualities and the people that you want to be on your team. I love that. No one's ever asked me that before. I'm super stoked that you just did. Um, I don't care about your GPA. You got straight S for all I care. It doesn't matter to me. doesn't matter to me. In the real world, can you show up? Will you follow through? Are you adaptable? Are you a learner? Do you understand that the world isn't predicated on you, right? I believe you build the world around you, but ultimately the world doesn't care about you. So can you show up and do the things, right? Ultimately, it's, it's this. It's two things. One, because I have hired and fired hundreds of people, right? 
and it's not great on on the backside of it, but my first real job at 18 years old, I was an assistant general manager of a Wendy's. Like um, you talk about, that's crazy. I was making like 26,000. That was like a million dollars to a kid from the hood. And so I would see resume after resume after resume after application after application. And the reality is that like, I understand that some people cannot read or write. I'm not going to allow that to be the thing that keeps them from stepping into reality. The thing that does though, is are you going to show up? The number one most important thing that I think about when I am sitting down and hiring people in whatever business it is, or even on my own team or anything that I do, the question I always ask people is like, tell me about the life that you wanna have, right? Paint me a picture of how this job helps you reach your goals. Because look, it's really easy to lie to people and be like, oh, I'm going to be a great employee. I love making fries. Nothing's more special to me than burning my hands every night on hot oil. That makes my life happy. Fine. If that's the truth, that's the truth. But in the reality, if you're like, I got seven fucking kids, I'm willing to work my ass off. I already have two jobs, but I still can't make ends meet. I will show up on time every single day and do what is asked without question or complaint. And I will bring things to the table about how I think that we can execute better. I'm going to hire you every single time, right? And so look, the reality is like I have done the most menial jobs from cleaning toilets to like running a multi-million dollar company. And the only thing that I know to be true about this is I have never one time asked for a transcript. <laughs> I'm going to clip that out and just put it on repeat. That's right. In my classroom. But God, when you dip those fries in those Frosties, that is good. That's the way to live. <laughs> Dude, let me insider trading secret. Do not eat the Frosty. <laughs> no. Oh, man. Straight up chemicals. So I guess um, one thing I'm curious about, you know, in regards to, to trauma is, is I think oftentimes when people think about it, they often think about, you know, your kind of story where it's, it's an, ex, there's a lot of extreme examples in that, in that story, but what, what else falls under this umbrella of childhood trauma? Because I feel like there are things that happen to kids that, you know, might seem insignificant on the outside, but that is an event that creates trauma. So am I, am I crazy about that? Or is that something that, no, I, I'm in total agreement, man. I, I think from a scientific and research aspect, you can go and look at you know, these case studies around what is trauma, right? Divorce, a parent going to prison, someone in your life attempting suicide, um, being homeless, being underfed or not taking the doctor when you need to be, being molested, being beat. You know, those things you can look at and go, okay, we have studied these. There are research behind it. There's there's evidence that is not anecdotal that these things lead to this right but then there's the moment when you're 14 years old and your basketball coach says go sit on the bench i'm tired of you being a loser and that impacts the rest of your life right there's there's that bully in sixth grade who steals your coat when it's freezing outside and says you're not strong enough to beat me up so enjoy being cold and then for the rest of your life, you don't take care of yourself because you believe it to be true that you're not strong enough, right? And so uh, I think a lot of the things that just get embedded and ingrained in us are those experiences, unfortunately. And with those experiences, whether it's this physical altercation or this moment of someone plants a seed that grows into a rotten apple tree, like you have to be able to figure out the impact of those experiences in your life to move through them because they are traumatic. Like I sit and I remember these moments of people telling me all of these horrid things and then looking at my adult life and going, yeah, I guess that's true. It must be because why else would they have told me that? And that being traumatic, because again, my definition of trauma is the backside ramification of the experience, right? And so like looking at that, I, I don't know that trauma is just specifically these individual events. But it is also specifically these individual events. So there's a lot of gray area. Yeah. And how, and how do you, I mean, do you have a process? Maybe this is something you do in, in therapy and in group therapy. But what is your process for, you know, dealing with the, those past events or reframing them or, you know, allowing yourself to close out of that, you know, tab on the browser that kind of is just spinning in your, in your mind the whole time? 
yeah, you have to disprove the hypothesis, right? And and I think that's what it's about. Now, now of course, like as a trauma-informed coach with certifications, certificates, and what I do in that arena is very, very different than what you would do in therapy or psychotherapy, right? Because I think that before you ever step onto the threshold in the playing field with me, you've got to do a lot of work, right? And then what happens is through the doing the work, i.e. going to therapy, figuring those things out, um, which is a precursor for anyone I work with, I won't touch you if you don't do that, um, is that it helps you create and establish a framework and, and kind of parameters about how you arrive to where you are, right? And then what it is in changing the narrative, that's really where coaching comes in because how do we, how do I help you understand something as a mirror that you have not understood until I put it back in your face, right? The number one thing that, that people get stuck on, they're like, I'm, I'm not capable, I'm not good enough. And then I go, let's talk through this experience that you've had any time in your life where you've done something incredibly difficult and you felt proud about it. And then I say, well, doesn't that hold true in what you're doing right now? Well, how do you continue to elaborate on that? How do you reframe all of these negative understandings, limiting self-beliefs, this poor narrative, this shame, this guilt, and all of these other different things to step over into what's next? Because ultimately, until you get to that place where you're willing to acknowledge the greatness in you, that those trauma things are just going to always be at the forefront. They're always going to be a boundary. And what I think about is really unfortunate about the society we live in, especially in, in Northern America. America is this idea that in order to be strong, you have to quote unquote, get over it. I got over it for 25 years and look where that got me. It wasn't until I busted through that wall and moved through it, that change started to happen. And I think that realistically, a long answer short to your question is that the only way you're going to reframe those experiences is you're going to have to acknowledge that they happened. One of the really unfortunate parts about having traumatic experiences in your life, whether they're physical, mental, emotional, whatever they may be, is that in acknowledgement, it means that you're coming to terms with some bad things that happened. And I think about it like this. If you own a house and someone throws garbage in your front yard, it's still your house and you have a choice to make. You're either gonna step over that garbage every single day and pretend it's not there, or you're going to pick it up. And the truth is, the hard truth, the unfortunate truth of this is, you are not culpable for the experiences that you had as a child, it's not your fault, period. That's a whole conversation in itself. It's incredibly difficult to step through that. but. The thing about it is in acknowledging that, then you come to the reality that yes, it is not your fault, but healing and cleaning up that garbage is your responsibility.